Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Antoinette and Otti. Antoinette is a professor of HR at the Uni of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Otti was uh, formerly COO and Chief Transformation Officer at ING. Uh, they're both the cow, co- cow founders, co-founders of a new project, Good Organizations. Antoinette and Otti, welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> Maybe could be also cow funders because I mean I'm Swiss, so in that sense. <laughs> Sorry. Cow funders and cow funders. <laughs> cow funders, right? Uh, so I thought of, I'd open this show. It reminds uh, me of Timor Singer. They actually have in their life science company. They have a mascot cow, which is, uh, I think, a very good idea. So maybe something to learn from. <laughs> right. Okay. So I wanted to open this show with your, uh, your statement on the homepage of goodorganizations.com, which uh, let's go for this. So during the last centuries, we have fallen prey of a neoliberal myth of unbounded individualism and social Darwinism. We have become happy slaves of our own limited narrative and got trapped in a system of consumerism and dehumanization. Our economy is failing to enable shared and sustainable prosperity and devastating our planet, whilst modern feudal lords have amassed money, power, and control. Time has come for revolutionary change. We must collectively re-embrace a humanist purpose. We must rebuild our organizations with virtues and wisdoms, courage and compassion, and with the best of knowledge, practices, and insights. But above all, we need to learn how to become the conscious and caring leaders humanity needs bravo i just thought that was such a wonderful kind of call to action uh in these times uh yeah it really gets me going that that opening statement and we thought it might be marginally too harsh but on the other hand especially the passage about feudal lords but the fact is if you look at the most recent statistics and um you can you can turn your eyes to um to the wonderful work um, of um, Upswing, um, Robert Putnam, the, the Nobel laureate, or you look at Paul Adler's work and so on, you, you see some of the statistics where 1% of Americans own 40 to 60% of the wealth in the country, right? And then there are some statistics that even six to eight individuals have more wealth than the bottom 40%. Right, and I think that the fact is, I find this flabbergasting. If if you just take a step back and say, kind of any political or economical system is as good as the people it in inverted commas produces, right? If we are if we are having a system that produces this kind of inequality, especially uh, if you look at wealth statistics, statistics, so not only salary but kind of accumulated assets, right? And where where many people who when in again U.S. statistics would require a $400 emergency uh, cash, they would kind of um, have to indebt themselves or ask friends because they don't have that amount of money ready anywhere. I mean, this is sad. And and I, I really feel very strongly and maybe kind of second half of my life that this is not acceptable, right? For a modern society, it is not acceptable that we are creating a system that is not taking care of the most vulnerable, and actually, as, as Antoinette is always saying, is burning kind of in exorbitant amounts of liveliness, of aliveness. Life is too precious yes. to, 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 be, to be kind of tortured in, in, in kind of modern suffering machines as organizations or in, in, in states where people kind of need to fear for their survival in, in the 21st century. But right? it, it is just unacceptable in my books. 
Yeah. And I, I just would like to add, um, just taking up the suffering machines. Um, I mean, I've been doing 25 years of research on organizations now, and we can look back as far as 70 years, if you look to humanism, and little has changed, or I would rather say it all has gone downhill from there on. Just look at the latest book of Jeff Dyer, where he looks at dying on a paycheck. I mean, you cannot go harsher than that. Um, but unfortunately, the statistics here show exactly the same and, and, and on this level as well. And I just find that gross. And I ask myself how to change it. Obviously, research alone doesn't. So that's why we are at the revolutionary point here. It does feel like that, doesn't it? You know, we're just we're just sick. We're, and what I love about this work is you, you, you talk about prescriptions ultimately for or at least suggestions of directions for organizations. But you start at the society level. And I think that's it's so important. I think it's important to zoom out. It, you know, it does feel like we're, we're somehow sick as a society. You know, we have more material wealth at any time in history, and yet we're all yeah, dying in our work. We're suffering as, as, as societies, and something needs to shift, and it requires revolutionary train, change. I, yeah, yeah, I, I can't help believing okay, Maybe on the, on the revolution. So one, I think you're absolutely right. We need to look at change in an interconnected systemic fashion. Right, between individual, organizational, and societal. On the other hand, this is one of the key explorations that Antoinette and I are kind of entertaining is this notion of morality, which, which for many people has a bit of an anachronistic slant. Right? So moral philosophy, that sounds boring and sounds very kind of something that we have left behind, right? normative morality or rules that we, we should abide by. And hence, there is an intrinsic conflict between an evolving system that, like you, like you mentioned, is going into the wrong direction. So there's emergence, but it's not emergence that is helping, and therefore a necessity to contain that system in a in a positive way, which cries out for kind of some rules, some some more normative um, agreements, right? Even voluntary agreements. Henry Minspec talks about this declaration of interdependence, where where voluntarily self-determined adults come to, together and say, this is what we owe to each other because it's for the good of all. And I think we've, we've lost this spirit, but also, and, and we were talking before we started about kind of recycling and, and um, circular economy and then how we individually can help. It's actually not easy. The world is big and complex, and uh, we know the capitalist recipes very well, but we don't know alternative recipes very well. And there's also a big um, fear that if we try something else, it might actually get worse. So I think from our perspective, there's a real need to, um, for ourselves and others to explore how to make a transition to something better and how to do it in a way that it bridges, as, as Antoinette is saying, kind of academic research. So there's some, some evidence-based uh, ideas and, and, and practitioners. How can you turn it into something concrete on a day-to-day basis at individual societal organizational level? And the revolutionary aspect resonates with what we, what we started with. Revolution implies a change in mindset, but also, let's be very clear about this, a change in power. It means a more decentral, in our perspective, a more decentral, decentralized um, use of power, a more a wider engagement in people in decision making in the institutions of demo- democracy, but also inside organizations. Right? So if we maintain the existing power base, and you were talking a little bit about agile earlier, right? Um, if, if nothing changes in terms of who holds the powers and how decisions are made, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, nothing changes. That's not a revolution. So the revolution sounds 
bombastic to a degree, but what we mean by that is we need to have a change in the way we think and we need to have a change in the way that we structure and especially who holds power how. Right, right. And, and I, I think, you know, I think one of the, one of the, seems to me as I, as I think about this and you talk there about unbounded individualism. So, okay, so perhaps part of this re- revolution is bounded individualism, right? It's the idea that I need to start putting limits on my own, this is the way I read it, right? I need to take on, you talk in other articles about your know, virtue ethics, like this recommitment to me leading a virtuous life, and that being a, a part of this. And just as I was reflecting over the weekend, we went, we, we've got young kids and we went over to another uh, friend's house and he's got like a house, which is, or they've got a house, which is like maybe 20 or 30% bigger than ours. And that's got my head spinning. Like for like an hour of me in that house, I'm like, oh, oh, well, what should I, you know, maybe I, wouldn't it be great to have this much more space? And, you know, how could I be getting some more money so I could get a house that big? And, you know, what, what, what our mortgage like, if, if you know, and that's and that's spinning away in my head, right? And because you talk in this in the article, uh, "Stop the Suffering," good, organiza- good organizations wanted. You know, we've all become mini capitalists, right? We're all trying to self-optimize so our our little capitalistic life can can be a sort of you know, I suppose, hold more 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 capital, and we can be bigger consumptive units. But that return to no, just hang on, you know, <laughs> what's important in my life? Like, what's the path of virtue for me? You know, not how big is my house? Like there's this revolution that needs to happen at a societal level, but also uh, in terms of the boundaries we set ourselves as individuals, it seems. Yeah. I think you touched two things or or several things, but I mean, maybe just start a little bit with the mindset again, because we were starting with that here is um, individualism is good. Competition is good. That's what we learned. And that's the worldview we imported everywhere. And that's why you kind of instantly light on and think about, I need to have a bigger house here. Um, so I think uh, that's already very important to understand that this is a worldview aspect. That's nothing uh, which is written in stone. And actually, um, as you probably then kind of referred to, um, well, maybe it's nice if I have a little bit more time for my family, if I have uh, the possibility to create something special. I mean, you did that in your life as well, rather than just earning more and, and getting better than on whatever levels. So I think that's that's the first uh, important thing. And, and, and you know, the, the sad thing is we have imported that everywhere. We have imported that into our organizational logic, but also into research. It's exactly the same. So all we're looking at in research is how can you get better? So we are only looking at performance um, with not, everything and it's we not, do. it's not better in terms of virtue, right? As no, you say, no, it's better in terms all. of performance. No, no, we have really, we have, ne- we have stopped looking at that with, with very few um, exceptions, of course. Business ethics still looks at it, but then they never look at organizations. So um, I think um, that that's already the first start. And, and I guess, Otto, you're now going through the structures and the power back. But um, I just wanted to say um, already realizing that and seeing how we are trapped in these different systems, don't even um, see that all we're doing is um, kind of cementing that worldview. I think that's the first big step, in my opinion. And I think uh, building, and, and I will give it back to you, Antoinette, on another topic that I know is close to your heart. I think, uh, Richard, what comes up is, one, the individual perspective, right? Because I've been 25 years in transformation, and one of the very basic uh, experiences is if the we have to do something 
doesn't become the, I will do something differently tomorrow. Guess what? Nothing ever changes. Right? And Otto Sharma says this very nicely. He says we have to bend the, the, the ray of reflection from the system back to ourselves. In other words, we have to look into the mirror more often. Right? Go on to that famous balcony, as we say in coaching with ourselves, to figure out kind of to what degree are we using what Aristotle would have called phronesis, so good judgment in our day-to-day, minute-to-minute, moment-to-moment decision-making. To what degree are we slaves of our own emotions? To what degree are we slaves of the societal conditioning that we all have been growing up with from schools, from families, from work in my environments and so on? And to what degree do we actually understand morality? What is a good worldview? Right? What does it mean to be good? Like you said, what is a virtuous life for us? These questions are hugely important. But if you're like me, nobody has ever kind of taken my hand, so to speak, and say, Ozzy, let's have a chat about this. Right? There are the kind of people talk, anthropologically speaking, talk about the lack of rites of passage. The yes. elders that in, in kind of uh, ancient societies were there to accompany the, the kind of apprentices, the, the youth of the, of the people to become fruitful members of society. Right? The, we don't have them anymore. We have this. Not only do we have a cult to have a bigger house than our neighbors, we also have a cult of eternal beauty, eternal youth. Right? We're avoiding that question of we have to die someday. We might want to have a legacy. There might be a more spiritual, more meaningful way to look at life. We're avoiding these questions. As Manfred Kistavri says in his last, uh, last book, at any kind of length. Right? And, and Manfred mm. says there's a, that meaning is the difference between making a living and making a life. And I think we have lost this, uh, the capacity, but also we have lost the collective nature of this reflection. Because guess what? It's very difficult to reflect these deep questions by yourself. And that's what I have experienced as well, right? Very often what you need is like solidarity groups, other people around you that you can learn from and that you can exchange with, right? And many people in this fail fast uh, thing that we have invented, right? Which of course is utter nonsense, but we, we have lost that. We said, just, just go about fail and then kind of maybe adapt. Well, maybe we want to think a little bit more at the start. But one thing that I wanted to give Antoinette back on this one is, is the relevance of, of creating community and the, the notion of virtue, which is very automatic at individual level, how to translate that at organizational level? Because that is one of the key questions we're posing ourselves. And I don't know, do you want to go a little bit into that, Antoinette, in the context of trust and solidarity? Well, I mean, um, I think it's essential for each and every one of us to understand that we are part of a community and that the living a virtuous life always has something to do with contributing to the common good. And the question, of course, is how to get there um, in a certain sense, how to create that community, and of course, also how to create the community, which still is also very uh, mindful that humans have their own dignity, their own life, um, their own diversity. And I think that's going to be a big part of what we are going to try to um, really put together. How can we have this more of this common good spirit um, in the organization's was being very mindful that we cherish diversity, that we cherish um, this individual development because a virtuous life is all also about your own development, about your own quest, how can I le- lead a virtuous life? And that's, that's not so easy. And 
I believe that trust plays a big role here because trust is kind of giving you both. Trust, if you are trusting, you allow others to flourish in their own fashion. Um, but it's also the trust in each other, uh, which makes us um, able to see that we have this common good together and that we can kind of co-create and learn from each other in a very rich way. Um, so that's one aspect of it. We are struggling with some others a little bit more, like with solidarity. Um, but I mean, we are quite sure that this, this uh, community aspect, or maybe it's more the common good aspect, is a very central one um, if we want to turn away from that pure individualism, uh, consumerism, um, competition kind of mindset we are still embracing um, also in new management books. But that's maybe something we later are taking up. <laughs> right. I'm interested in what's, what's it, what is your struggle with solidarity? What's that? Well, Otti, maybe you are going to talk about that. Well, maybe I'm going to, I'm going to, so Richard, I'm going to pick up something that Antoinette just finished on, which is kind of on the one that there are a number of important tensions in the way that we are exploring the landscape, so to speak, right? So we're starting with the question, what is good? And we are saying in our hypothesis, so to speak, an organization is good at the three levels that we mentioned at the organizational level as an actor. So it is acting with the common good at heart. And again, I want to be very clear, it's not about balancing purpose and profit, as, as it's so fashionably called. It's actually not, because in my view, and I'm with Colin Myers, who's written that in Prosperity, his, his famous book, that organizations are such by public fiat. They're, they're created by society. The incorporation makes an organization an independent body, often with very strong privileges in terms of um, liabilities and so on, right? But that is only so because the society has decided that it's a good idea to create that organization, right? That is what makes it. Therefore, I believe it responsibility is firmly anchored in becoming a positive contribution to society. And that is a sine qua non. That is a, a primordial condition, so to speak. There's no balancing. Anything else that you do thereafter is on a different logical plane, right? So first and foremost, you are part of society, and that is not as I think even Peter Drucker once suggested, do no harm. No, it is, it is contribute to the flourishing of that ecosystem that is constituted by that society. And once you have that at heart, then you start to look at secondary conditions, which might be bring that service to a specific consumer, which might be a survival or, or kind of um, financial condition in terms of profit and so on. But certainly, and most clearly, that is not the maximization of profit. Because profit, and again, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft, um, <laughs> microeconomics basics. I'm going to talk about Microsoft and they're not, not paying taxes later, but, which, which is absolutely incredible, right? It's a kind of these big organizations not paying taxes is, is unacceptable, is ridiculous, and we should not buy from them in reality. But that aside, right? So the, the notion of profit is, is um, revenues minus cost. Revenues, which people sometimes forget, includes all the salaries. Uh, so all the, all the benefits and costs includes all the salaries from the CEO downwards. So profit is what remains exclusively for the shareholder. And what we have today with the financialization of the economy, as we're always saying, is we have a, a huge disconnect between 
a very often kind of anonymous ownership through lots and lots of shareholders or pension funds and so on who have no real interest in the firm, right? And therefore, the, the idea that you're maximizing profit for someone who has really no interest in the going concern, but only in the financial returns is somewhat, I think, misleading and, and creating the problem, right? So the first aspect is the organization has to act well within the context of society. The second is the organization has to create a good container for the people, almost like a mini society to enable them to collectively thrive. And this is, I think, where the notion of solidarity, what we owe to each other, like you said, how we voluntarily looking at this thing across um, all of its aspects together is really important. And it's not the same as stakeholder theory, right? So if you go to Davos or if you went to the last Davos gathering to 2019 or beginning of 2020, whatever it was, right? There was this notion of um, um, stakeholder capitalism, right? Stakeholder capitalism in its essence, and it's, it's not a bad idea, but in its essence, this means I'm adding new stakeholders to my to my annual report, so to speak, right? So they are not only looking at the shareholders, I'm looking at customers, I'm looking at community, maybe at nature, nobody knows quite how to measure that, but so I'm adding other stakeholders. I believe that is not quite the same as saying I'm taking care of what internet calls the common good because every stakeholder has their own agenda and it doesn't necessarily mean it adds up back to what is best for everybody. This is what Rousseau mm-hmm. called the difference between kind of the majority and, and the, the common will, so to speak. And then finally, it's the breeding ground for the individual. And here I'm with Bob Keegan, who talked about deliberately developmental organizations where the organization becomes a breeding ground for the flourishing of the individual. And again, to your point, therefore also has a responsibility to help the individual to become good in their own way. Whatever that means for you and I and Antoinette, right? What is our good life? It's going to be different for sure. But whatever, wherever we find ourselves in organization, Right, assuming that we're 60 plus percent of our waking hours behind the desk somewhere, has a co-responsibility to allow us to achieve that good life in our lives, it, be it only through those container of work. But that indeed is the last point I want to make in terms of people talk about the future of work. The problem with the future of work is it's almost like the work is the, the, um, the victim of the future. Right? Because before you know it, when you talk about future of work, you're starting to talk about automation and AI and smart technologies and so on, and how work and the workers have to adapt themselves to maintain productivity and maintain profit. Well, and I I beg to differ. I think the real conversation is about what's the work of the future? What do we want work to be? Do we still want to work? If so, why? And if so, how? How can work become something that adds to the flourishing, to the liveliness, to the kind of living energy of this planet? as opposed to being just a resource, just an input to an equation, which we already know is ultimately damaging, at least in part, the sustainability of this, of this planet. Antoinette, what's your view? Well, I'm just kind of reflecting that this just shows how um, important it is that we understand the business as a moral business um, in the end, because it all comes back to the same um, understanding. Um, you would only think about, I have to self-optimize um, in an agile context in order to be a higher valuable resource um, if, the, if the worldview or the ethics is, is wrong, in my opinion. And that's why you have to start really with uh, what you were first elaborating on. What is the business of business? And I think it's, it's, it's the, the contributing to the common good is the business of business first and foremost. 
And that, I think, is, is really important. And then, of course, I think then you can really start to try to build in whatever ways, whether we should call it building or not. I mean, I'm still kind of a positivist, probably a little bit more coming from that uh, direction or um, just attract or make sure um, that we have this uh, possibility that we know what the common good is we want to contribute to, that we have this community, that we enable this com community that ab above all, in my opinion, get rid of a lot of things which are kind of um, make it, making it impossible because we have ingrained competition, nasty competition into our companies. We have ingrained um, that money and status is everything into our um, greed even. I mean, greed is so strong. We have ingrained that into our organizations with all these sorry, bloody incentive systems we're working with and so on and so forth. But I think it really starts with the first question. So um, what is a good business? And I also agree with Oti, um, we wouldn't get the license to operate if we weren't able I mean, obviously, we got the license to operate and we're abusing it, but we're not going to hold it much longer if we're not going to answer that question properly. Right. Yeah, and there's several things you touched on there. One was the agile point, and I love in your, your article, Stop the Suffering, uh, good organizations wanted, is that uh, agile is like lipstick on a pig. And you talk about what, what, what agile tends to do is allow a team to learn, but what it isn't doing is allowing for the development and learning of the whole system, right? It allows a team within the system to learn. Um, and I think that's really important. And that's why I think, as I was saying before we came in the car, I find myself sort of edging further and further away of some of the agile. And even as you say, Otti, the sort of the teal conversations is, it's because they're not really looking at this full perspective, individual worldview. Yeah. Organization is an actor in society and society as a whole. And you've, you've, you've got to take this sort of revolutionary styles, looking at all through those lenses to get that impactful, meaningful, sustainable change. And yeah, I think, I think you're on to the, you know, the right, the right track with this. Um, and maybe there, there's one thing, Richard, which um, we haven't touched on, which I mean, this is, a, I don't want to make this sound simple. And I also think many people, be that agilists or, or teal disciples or so, I think they're earnestly trying to find solutions. And as Antoinette said, in spite of that, there hasn't been a lot of progress. So we really need to look, if it was easy, someone would have solved it a long time ago. So we cannot fool ourselves that kind of suddenly Otti and Antoinette come on and, and Richard, we come on stage and, and we've, we're kind of deus ex machina, as they would say in, in, in theater, we've solved it. This is difficult. And I think this is also difficult because there's a, there's a normative moral perspective, as Antoinette is saying, what is good? And I really feel we have neglected this. And I'm personally responsible. I've been a leader in many situations in many enterprises. And I've been, as, as, um, as has been claimed in literature, I've been morally mute. I've never asked that, those questions. I've also never been trained in those questions. And this is, as Gary Hamill is always, uh, Hamill is always saying, I mean, it's funny that in management, in spite of all these changes in the world, very little has changed. There's no fundamental management innovation in terms of theory since Williamson and Jenkins and Friedman, right? So for 30, 40 years, there's nothing new. Which, is, which arguably are not even management innovations. Which arguably is not, <laughs> no. not even, here you got the professor. But anyway. <laughs> but so there, there's, a, there's a lack of, of engagement with the morality question in my perspective. But 
let's also be clear that this is a complex world. And then to a degree, human organizations have always been complex. But the moment that you move away from bureaucracy, where self-management enables a much wider variety of viewpoints, of, of opinions, of, of, of uh, ways to interact, things become ever more complex. And complexity, as we know from complex adaptive systems and complexity theory, is kind of withstanding to a large degree deterministic, sequential, linear thinking. So there's an innate tension between morality, which is looking for universality, so to speak, and complex systems, which is all about contextuality. But it's all entangled. You cannot actually predetermine what the consequences of your actions will be, and it's ever emerging. Right, so you have an innate challenge between these two concepts. And in that regard, I think, like you say, so one, the agile perspective, if taken as a methodology, is, is doing neither. It is not addressing the morality, because people are actually still kind of um, stuck in a capitalistic mindset where becoming more agile is a means towards more profit. And funnily enough, if you read half of the business ethics handbooks that I've written, uh, business ethics is, is is always positioned as a means to attain profit, which is ridiculous in itself. And then on the other hand, agile is not as, not necessarily addressing all of what we know in terms of complex systems, especially what you just mentioned, the entanglement that even transcends the, the, the organization as such. So one, we are trying to get to more fluidity inside the firm by having a networked operating model with call it circles or tribes or microenterprises like in high and so on. So you're trying to create more autonomy, but also more flexibility in the way that we're operating. But at the same time, we need to build ecosystems because the big problems of this world cannot be addressed by any single player. And I would argue not even any single player in business, we actually need to create ecosystems that transcend the economy where we have actors from multiple constituencies like politics or NGOs, and organizations together trying to address some of these challenges. So I'm kind of in my mind having the notion that actually no single organization can be ethical unless they start to see themselves as part of a wider ecosystems of actors that are trying to produce common good. Because it's, it's ridiculous to assume that they could ever, even if they're Amazon, so to speak, right? And Amazon, personally, I would suggest is based on the little knowledge I have, one of the worst organizations in terms of ethical standards. But even in terms of size and, and, and reach that an organization like that have, they cannot by themselves solve these problems. So an ethical kind of uh, qualification of a single enterprise becomes almost meaningless. It has to become part and insert itself voluntarily and proactively into a wider ecosystems of actors, right? So this agility, as you say, if we're not careful, it just proliferates the status quo because we haven't sufficiently explored neither the what is good nor the what does systemic actually imply question. And I think this is also what makes the the work that we've started, Antoinette and I, both super exciting, right? Because of the the transdisciplinary nature from psychology, sociology, anthropology, complexity science, philosophy, management science, and you name it, right? But on the other hand, intrinsically very complex and therefore I guess we will not, I don't know, Antoinette, I think we will not come out with a model, as Carl Sanford would call it. It's not, a, it's not a prescriptive thing. We will probably come up with a framework which allows people to ask the right questions and, and try to deploy that critical thinking and that phronesis that we talked about to find the right answers in their specific context. What, what's your view, Antoinette? 
On the latter one, I'm completely with you. Um, I just wrote him yesterday. I'm again in the valley of the Dunning-Kruger effect. So <laughs> it's just a lot, but it is also exciting. Um, well, I think you have to explain the effect. I mean, there's certainly some people <laughs> who will not, not realize that. Well, I mean, uh, Richard, I guess you have heard about it, but it just means that... Um, when, if you know nothing, you have the feeling you know everything about it. Then you start learning about it and then you realize I know nothing. And then you sometimes get out of the valley again and realize now I know something. But of course, you're getting back and back to the valley, maybe on a higher <laughs> level. But this right. is just even if you're a professor, that's just yeah. the, the basic experience um, yeah. over the life. But what I maybe wanted to take up um, is a little bit more of the micro foundation um, that sparked uh, what you were saying, Otti. Um, and I think that's that's an important difference to, um, yes, um, it's all about contextuality and out and outcomes are not um, are not clear because you don't have any linear effects in complex systems. But on the other hand, I think this is um, why we also turn to virtue ethics, because virtue ethics is much more about behaviors um, and habits and constantly working on your habits. Um, but it's contextualized. So, um, for instance, if you take courage as, uh, as one of uh, a possible virtue, you wouldn't show it always in the same way. Um, you would sometimes be a, a little bit more withholding and then in other times you would uh, show it much more stronger. So it takes this context aspect much more into it. And it's much more about about behaviors and habits, um, which is also helpful because remember, in a neoliberal um, ideology, it was all about outcomes. So it also kind of focuses on um, other aspects again. But I would still say there is a huge difference um, and I'm not sure whether uh, in complexity theory they would even subscribe necessarily to that. But we're clearly going away from a postmodern claim that everything goes. So this is not what we are believing. Yeah. Um, we're seeing that some values are inherently um, more important or ethical or good than others and and i think it's important to at least think about that and not say well you know in this world we cannot kind of agree on anything so um, everything will come out right if we just let people do whatever feel is right to them which is of course now grossly exaggerating but um, just to give you also i think another important um, aspect on all of this and maybe one yeah. one further sentence on that richard if you allow the um, we're actually starting to talk about the European kind of model, almost like a European alternative, because what we believe is we, we kind of have moved towards an American neo-capitalist model, also in the way that we are structuring our enterprises, very focused on entrepreneurship, right? If you read uh, Gary Hembel's and Michele Zanini's Humanocracy, right? This idea of creativity and innovation is really what we're aiming for. And I think we are probably going back to what Antoinette calls the Ehrbare Kaufmann, which in German is the, the trustworthy, um, uh, what's it? Merchant. Uh, the merchant, merchant. the trustworthy yeah. entrepreneur. Yeah. And so this trustworthiness is something that I think some people would claim. And I know um, Stefano Zamani, for example, of the University of Bologna, one of the people who I think we will be speaking to very shortly, 
is, um, is, is suggesting that the European model that was uh, built a little bit on the cooperation model in Germany, but also in the UK, if you think about um, John Lewis partnerships, for example, yeah, yeah. And in Italy, in terms of some of the developments on the um, cooperatives in, in Italy, there was a kind of a European model, which was much more founded in some of these virtues, which has been very quickly let go at the beginning of the last uh, of the 20th century towards uh, in, in going with the American version. And I think there's a little bit, and maybe that politically is, is not entirely correct to say we are creating a, an alternative model, which is European in nature. But on the other hand, I think... It might also serve to put the light a little bit on the differences between what we are suggesting vis-a-vis, as you said earlier, Richard, what, what the prevailing dominant hegemonic mindset is around us. And we need to, I think we might need to create a stark contrast so that people can actually see the differences. Because the problem is if you're in it, if you're in this treadmill, you don't even see that there are alternatives. So maybe by creating a stronger model and maybe even by calling it European, it could bring some people back to looking at these virtues. And final point on this, I think virtue versus value. Some people might use it as synonymous, and it is not. That value, let me be a little bit facetious here. Value is what you have if you go to Canary Wharf and go into the big banks and, and see what is on the posters and PowerPoints. That's the value. And then I leave it to people to decide whether they believe that is executed or not. Virtue well, is there's a, very good research in the fact that people are not at all uh, aligned <laughs> with their values and find them, in fact, um, uh, completely irrelevant to their job. <laughs> some majority. I, of I, will, I will. I will endorse that claim. And I, I'll, I look at some of the statistics, right, where 51 percent of people believe managers are not honest. And then 91 percent of people believe in some recent statistics that actually the current system is, is, is only bringing benefits to shareholders. And whatever you write in terms of your values being ecocentric and people centric, that people are your biggest assets and things like that. Actually, nobody believes that. 56 percent of people, which I find stunning, believe that capitalism is doing more harm than good. And frankly, interestingly as well, and I'm talking to many American colleagues about this, this, this YOLO movement that has started to firm itself up. This you only live once. They call it the great resignation. Right? So lots of people are resigning, especially in the United States, but yeah. I've also anecdotal data here from the Netherlands that is starting, are resigning because they don't find sufficient meaning. They don't find sufficient um, development opportunities in their current jobs. And it reminds me a little bit, and I'm, I'm, I want to be really careful in a historical sense to draw comparisons, but after the plague, which arguably, of course, was, was even more disastrous than our pandemic, but in the Renaissance, right, in the Italian city-states in the 15th and 16th century, you had this movement after that deadly plague that people really took a step back and said, I want more meaning in my life. I only live once. And you had this flourishing of arts, of, of, of the economy, of, of the citizen-state, and, um, and the city. So I think my hope is maybe something similar might occur here. Right? But of course, on the other hand, you have the opposite. Right? If you look at some of the recent statistics on, on, on democracies, on, on free speech, um, on these kind of pandemic strongmen coming out of the crisis, it, it, it might also be that all the wrong lessons are, are heeded. But again, values, therefore, as you say, people don't believe in it a lot. Virtues, by conversely, are our um, habits, right? Of, uh, so to speak, values that are that are habituated in terms of daily practices, and I think this is a little bit what has made us really think that the virtue ethics idea could be a good one because 
It is focused on the individual as part of the community. It is pragmatic and practical through these specific practices. And maybe there is an idea that instead of um, focusing on the organizational culture, right, which, uh, which again, proliferation of management literature. I've, even, I've seen a, a recent invite to a seminar on, on uh, culture strategy or, or how to change your culture to make, uh, make more profit and things change like that. Change your culture in half a year, as a colleague of mine asked yeah, me to teach. Five days to change your culture. <laughs> and then here are seven steps for cultural change. I mean, frankly, <laughs> most of this is, is, is really, as you said, not really changing the culture because that very approach is just reendorsing the, the existing culture. And I think maybe the notion of character of an organization might be more interesting to say, okay, which are the daily habituated practices that we could introduce in the form of existing management processes or rituals or other techniques that would bring about the collective flourishing, right? Including what Antoinette calls like pro-social and ego-deflating emotions, Right, the, you, you cannot force people to be compassionate, but you can practice it. You can you can give people a little back the the awe of the cherishing of the beauty of life, so to speak. You you need to bring back something positive. It cannot all be the world is falling apart and therefore we have to act out of fear. No, it has to also be organizations are beautiful mechanisms to bring out the very best in humanity. Right, they allow us to do things that individually we could never achieve. That beauty, that essence of what we are and what we can do in terms of our creativity, in terms of our humanity, that is what organizations can enable. But it's been forgotten in that kind of hubristic search and chase and quest for profit. So maybe if we re-enlighten that spark of there's something more, right, maybe that will also help. And But again, I think it's, uh, it has to be daily practices. There's a very strong context that draws us back into the old ways of doing things. So we need to install ways that allow people to at least see it. They can still make their own decisions as to whether they want to endorse it or not. Right? But uh, there's something which has been lost, which is very precious, and which maybe, maybe after this pandemic, people are a little bit more open to rediscovering. Well, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. But then, of course, what's the, the pandemic, is, is, what's come with it is a lot of people in a state of fear. Right. And the social distances and wary of their fellow man don't even want to go into the office. You know, so I think, yeah, it's an interesting concept to want to do it. And I think some people who, you know, perhaps have enough going on in their life that, that they're not so susceptible to all of the fear, you know, will be in a place where because you, you can't you can't, you know, open up, be vulnerable, be creative, enter into deep inquiries in a state in a state of fear. Um, so I think it, it's those who have the fortitude and have got a sort of enough of those practices going on that they can then bring those questions to others and at a deeper level to themselves um, to ask this question, you know, what is good and what might, what might good mean for our organization? Uh, yeah. It's uh, yeah, but the Richard, enemy of all about. Yeah. But Richard, to take that up, I mean, there are two things I'm hearing here. Uh, here. First of all, um, we're not all in a state of fear and those who are not, I think it's, it's our obligation then, um, to then share compassion, gratitude, um, the, the emotions that Oti was talking about because they are so helpful in kind of overcoming the fear, um, reaching out more consciously. And I think we have seen quite a lot of people being able to do that as well. So we're kind of focusing on the fear aspect, but we, I think we saw a, a lot of other positive aspects as well as i um see it from the outside 
Um, so uh, th that I believe is very important. And the second thing is, and that goes probably exactly counter agility. We should stop that action bias we have in organizations. Mm. <laughs> we need more reflection spaces. And I think that's so important um, um, because uh, in theory, in agile, we would have a time between project where we would really reflect. But in practice, that's very rarely really a very long period where we reflect together. And I think that needs to come back to organizations um, to, to have that space. Yeah, and, and it goes back. Thing, um, something Emanuele Quintarelli told us recently in an interview, and Emanuele is, of course, one of the four thinkers of organizational development in, in terms of sociocracy versus highest rendering high models and others. But Emanuele said something that stuck with me in that notion of kind of um, individual versus collective, but also cherishing what the, the potential that we have. And Emanuele said, why would we make it a difference between kind of individual and collective flourishing. Maybe it is just about understanding that actually, as, as uh, the Dalai Lama would say, if you kind of, if, 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 you, if you want happiness, make someone else happy. Mm. The, the trick is actually that there is no difference between individual and collective flourishing, because by the moment that I'm enabling someone else to flourish, I flourish myself. And I think this is a, this is a little bit where kind of, what looks like a constraint from one side in terms of my individual freedom, going back to the initial argument, might not be one. That might be part of this intellectual prison that I've created for myself, where in reality, my only key to, to sustainable happiness and to flourishing is to understanding that, as David Bohm would say, separation is an illusion. We are just one. Right. There is no we are. We have created all these categories and separations in our minds, and some of them are very useful. Right? And as we said at, before we started the call, identity is a relational concept. I define myself in separation and difference to others. But in reality, maybe that transcending these 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 uh, categories might really be where that life energy can become its very brightest. And I think this is important because very often when we talk about solidarity, going back to that point, people see it as a well, ultimately, what you're telling me is that I should uh, constrain myself or limit myself and so on. And, and I think, and again, Emmanuel pointed me to this, and I, I think Antoinette and I will evolve this further, but maybe that is, that is just the wrong lens, right? It's kind of, and we are not advocating Taoism to the very end, so to speak, this, this all-embracing, because I think it can also lead to inaction, the way of the kind of the art of inaction sometimes can just lead to not acting when it's needed. And I think, again, in the European tradition, we want to act. There's too much suffering. We need to do something about it. But on the other hand, there's maybe some learning in the Eastern way of looking at things. And actually, we are, we are all in this together and not at an intellectual level. Right? We are emotionally and at a spiritual level, we are connected. And actually, the moment that we realize that there is energy that can be unleashed in the relationships, Again, in complexity, we know that the relationships are almost more important than the notes, right? So this putting the focus on the relationships between each other and, 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 and creating higher energy in that might be really where the wisdom is in, in, in all of this. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we need to make sure that our mindset is evolving because the way we look at things is, is our reality, 
And yeah. then I think about what you're saying here, and then I leave Richard because he's not able to ask questions. Sorry about that. Oh, I'm just enjoying the ride there. Go for it. <laughs> Watching just, you two spa is fun. I just wanted to say um, this is um, here. We even have empirical evidence. I mean, that's um, I think the, the big accomplishment of positive psychology that they look at. How is your individual flourishing creating exactly that type of emotions like gratitude and compassion, also passion, um, which then can be translated into positive relationships and collective flourishing, which then gives you again more space to um, develop yourself in, in that way. So I would say um, that uh, it's something I'm pretty um, hopeful that this could be happening and that we could be feeling this if only we started this a little bit more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it- it bring on unbounded individualism in the sense that we, we let go of the self, right? We're, we're totally unbounded. We're connected to others in these rich relationships. And then the other point you're emphasizing here is reflection. I mean, I know it from my own career. I had to drop out of the management consultancy I worked for in order, you know, looking, joining the doubts, looking back to go and heal. I couldn't do it in a corporate context, right? And, and the, the, the stuff that I was dealing with, you know, um, alcoholism and, and sexual compulsion, all of this, all of the dysfunctions I had going on in my life in that note, there was no way that organization could, could hold me through that healing process. I had to go and, and find, you know, find my own path through that and, and therapists and healings and healers and so on. But what if we had a society that, that took people like all the way, as you going back to write so Patrick, all the way through their maturation into the working world, held them in organizations that allowed them to flourish and to heal. And I think healing is an important point here because we have, many of us have suffered through the, 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 the current societal context that we're, we're living in. And there, and there has to be not only reflection in terms of these, from, from my perspective, of these philosophical questions about, you know, what does good like? What does a virtuous look like? They, those are really important, but also just space to heal. And Gary Hamill, who you referenced, talks about the, you know, this idea of the recovering bureaucrat, right? In an organizational context that, you know, you give yourself some space to like acknowledge the, the, the games that you've been playing and the practices that you've been engaged in as a, as the start of letting them go. Absolutely. And I think it, it resonates in, in, in many different levels. So one, I would like to hear Carfoot to whoever is listening, make an invitation on behalf of Richard and myself. And I think Antoinette as well, because Antoinette is on a sabbatical to engage in this project together with me. I'm on an executive sabbatical, so to speak, to um, to make this happen. Richard is saying the same. I, I would almost advocate everybody who has been for five to seven years in a, in a role in a business, take out a sabbatical, right? Take out, you cannot, as Richard says, I think it's impossible to build that reflection into the normal business as usual. It doesn't work. And there's lots to learn out there. And I think um, what I've discovered, and I think uh, Antoinette would also endorse that, is that very often it's the liminal conversation. Conversation with others who have different opinions, who bring in a different perspective, who come from a different world that can make us grow in terms of the way that we enable critical thinking. And again, this critical thinking, I think, is really what is at the core of it. Whereas I say thinking, but I don't mean it in a cognitive way only. I think there's embodying. What I learned when it comes to psychodynamics of organizations is really, as a, as a psychodynamic coach, and I think leaders have to become coaches to a degree, you're starting to use your body as tool, right? Self as tool. 
because you're able to empty yourself of the emotions that you're feeling in the situation. And you're trying to just capture the kind of the, the radio signals of the system around you. And you're starting to take a step back from that and try to disentangle what is the underlying di- dynamic. If you take away the behaviors of the moment, what is actually going on underneath? And I think uh, John Lurie talks about the, the organizational ecologist, right? So someone who can sense the signals of the correlations, the energy flows, the constellations inside the organizations, and is able to do something with that. Because our idea is always that if there's a behavior or a challenge, it's not the individual's fault, it's the system's fault. Right? So there's something in the system where almost like an acupuncturist, you go in and you try to understand where's the energy, where's it stuck, how can you remediate the system And ideally not you as the superhero, but you have the capacity embedded in your organization. So agile becomes not only let's have tribes and squats and go with the standard rituals. No, there's also, a, as Antoinette says, a reflective practice to go back and look beyond, look at, do we still have the right roles? What are the dynamics in the teams? Should we change the structures? You're creating creating a a capability to think about yourself in the organization, inside the organization. And I think that is really what we want by truly agile at scale, so to speak, organizational learning, as Pete Senge would have, would have framed it, right, as a, as a type of business. So I think that is, that is immensely important. But the point that you made on healing, I think there's, on the one hand, there's a bit of a warning sign coming up in me, because in, in coaching, we're always trained to not step into the healer stance, If you're trying to heal others, you're a bit on a dangerous slope, right? Because it always pretends that you know better than they do. And you could also make yourself dependent on the results of your healing process, so to speak. So I think it's, it's again, about creating, a, as you suggested there, Richard, an environment where people can self-heal, right? And that, I think, is really important. And in solidarity, it also implies a little bit that people have each other's backs. Why? Because there's kind of compassion and love, so to speak, love, love in a, in a agape sense, in a trans, trans, transient love for all of us because it's good, so to speak. And we are holding each other up. That's what Keith Razzi calls co-elevation. Right? If you can access these type of energies in a system, I think you're on a good track. And the final point I want to make is, is um, something that Klaus Eidenschenk came up this weekend, which is looking at decision-making processes. And his suggestion was that you almost need to heal yourself You almost need to go back to, am I able to actually hold myself before I go as what Antoinette called the action bias? Don't start with setting yourself a goal and running after it. First go into the, can I actually go into the decision-making? Where am I myself? Can I hold myself? And then you start to look at, why am I trying to do what I'm trying to do? So you interrogate your own will. And then you start to, to go into your decision-making. But I think, Richard, what you say, the self-healing, this attaining personal agency, if that is absent, it's almost impossible to come to fully self-managed systems. But right? I because think people are stuck. if we would try to kind of difficult summarize what you were saying um, and, and taking up um, Richard's point on healing, I would uh, think that there are three things. First of all, um, Do a way in the system which creates um, that people have to heal afterwards. So maybe it wasn't because you were working in a system, but you had it before. But maybe it was the system as well that that accept uh, really um, fooled your um, problems. That's the first thing. The second thing is again. Um, 
get yourself that space. And I mean, as an organization, you can have also sabbatical as a reflective space. Uh, that's not new, but maybe should be used more often. And um, the third thing, I still believe um, that we need to be more uh, having a higher affinity to, to um, feelings. I believe especially compassion um, is something which is really needed. And of course, other positive emotions can help as well because they kind of reach out and maybe open you up to agree that it's easier for yourself to then start the healing. Um, because, I mean, we talked a lot about that, that we are being interdependent. Um, in trust research, we see that kind of like this is a fundamental vulnerability we all share. Um, I am dependent on others for my self-worth for my identity, for uh, the regard, for the dignity I'm, I'm giving or attributed to. Um, and hence, I do believe that these are aspects we can infuse into organizations much, much more. Even though, of course, the healing is something uh, which in the end, the person has to do himself, herself, I guess. So, but you can have much better conditions than we have today. Yeah, you can have much better conditions. But as long as, you know, our, our organizations are focused, have the action bias, focus on making the profit, oh. the short, you know, yeah. there's no space for healing. Yeah, oh. I, I, you know, in most of our organizations today. Um, well, the only thing I would say, and I agree with you, that the, we have to tread carefully in helping others heal. But I, I could not have healed without having somebody holding space for me. Right? I needed right. somebody to hold my spells space through it. And uh, I, I just love this wonderful example that I'll share of um, a complexity writer, um, well, Ralph Stacey, and his uh, co-author Chris Moyles, tell this story of an of a hospital in the UK. Um, and I think this perfectly illustrates the point where they had a lot of falls amongst elderly patients on this on this ward. And they, and they knew that they had this high mortality from these falls of, of elderly patients. So in their first attempt to deal with this, you know, they, they looked at all of the problems in the processes where this was going on. Um, they developed a bunch of objectives about how they were going to do better against these various metrics. They designed the new processes and then uh, they implemented these processes and immediately they saw a drop in fall rates and a drop in mortality in this hospital. But within a year, They'd, they'd gone back to exactly the same pattern, right? And uh, mortality and falls were exactly the same, right? So they took another approach where they took one of the midwives who was a particularly skilled fa facilitator, uh, not midwife, uh, matrons, a uh, skilled facilitator, and she just held people in conversation and had them process, as she described it, their shame about the things they weren't doing for these elderly patients, right? that they, they weren't attending to this detail or that detail, and they knew deep down that that was contributing to these falls, but they'd never had the space to share about it. And so the way I view that is this, this obviously talented mate took them through a kind of a healing process. Um, and so without any of the objections, without any of the process of re-engineering or any of the metrics, what they started to see was the fall rate drop and the mortality rates drop, uh, and it was sustainable. Like they came back two, three years later and they see the same improvement. So that to me illustrates the sort of the difference in the, that you, one can take in organizations to change and, and the impacts that it can have. And I would, I would build on that. I, the, what, what, what you bring up. So one, I would invite everybody to look at Stacy. I think it's, it's a, it's a very nice call out. Also the Stacy matrix. And we were talking a lot with uh, 
our friend Dave Snowden and about his Canavan model. But I think the Stacey model is very interesting because I, I enjoyed the fact that whenever there's greater complexity, what Stacey invites us to is dialogic organizational development. And I think one other aspect that I would pull out, Richard, of what you just explained is the dialogic nature. And I think what Antoinette and I have seen is that kind of when you talk about structures and processes and rituals in organization, to a degree, they become a container for the individual age agency and the dialogic capability of the organization. And with increasing agency and, and dialogic capabilities, so the ability to learn from each other, you're relenting on the containerized structure. So you're giving ever more autonomy to individuals and teams based on their capacity to be self-contained, so to speak, self-determined and dialogic and able to work with others. And I think that starts to introduce this notion of the living organization really as a flourishing system where this container, the structures and processes become the parental holding, we would call it in psychology, of the maternal energy, the, the play, the creativity, the experimentation. And it's constantly adapted to the capacity of the organization to expand itself. And it, then you can start to see a really uh, a different metaphor to the traditional machine. The other thing that I would call out on, especially the health environment. So in my mind, at least, it's, it's no surprise that Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety came all from originally a health environment, from hospitals and so on. And Antoinette is, is, is talking a lot about care ethics and this notion of caring and caring for others, right? which, again, I think, so one, you point out the healing aspect of, of those uh, almost kind of traumatic conversations, so to speak, right? And there's a lot about talk about trauma these days where people need to make sense and also let it go to a degree. But the other aspect, I think, is this notion of caring, where you show caring, where you allow people to express caring, where you create an environment of caring, which, again, for me, is one of the preconditions for any organization to work. I was talking with Michele Zanini about meritocracy as an organizational methodology. And I think we both agree that it, it can only fully work if it's introduced in a context that is wholesome, right? That is caring. If not, as Antoinette says, these logics of competition with each other, of trying to kind of uh, cling to power in, in a system for selfish reasons, right? We'll, we'll take the best of ideas and just make it slave to that dominant logic that we're all encapsulated in. Right? So I think one, as you say, the healing to the dialogic nature and free as almost like a prime virtue, the caring aspect, which I think is fundamental. And uh, if you look at companies like Budzork, again, I think they, they have an ability to let go of a lot of the contractual elements that you find in firms like, like initially at least Zappos with holacracy. They can let go a lot of that because there's so much trust in the system. And I think that is also because they're in a caring business where it almost comes natural to them to care about each other and therefore to trust each other and give each other the space. And maybe I can just use that for a small advertising. Please, Carol Gillian, we want to talk to you. So <laughs> because she is the mother of care ethics and a kind of, it will be hard to get all these sages to talk to us, but uh, we would really like to learn more about that. Yeah, that's right. But and I, I think, so I think we're pointing to here is, you know, valuing the feminine in the organizations but what i love from uh, raj sisodia's work is that you know the, the, the healing organization he talks about you you want to be both right you want to have this healthy feminine caring 
nurturing energy in organizations, but you also want the masculine um, that's able to, to to enforce the boundaries and to say no. And I think so often now in modern organizations, we we yeah. we often characterize them as being sort of overly masculine, but then often the masculine is missing when it comes to saying, no, that 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 behavior is unethical. You can't stay here if you're going to continue doing that. Of course, you see it in the banks, you'll be familiar with it, Otty, right? There's this um, reticence to to enforce ethical behavior, which often is associated with the with the masculine. Yeah, but I think this is kind of what what when we're saying thwarting is 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 really a, an important principle. We often talk about, or I have to say, I'm the one who's often talking about this, uh, the no asshole rule, for instance. So I do believe that we need boundaries. Um, um, if you look at systems which are really trying to kind of uh, be virtuous organizations, they tend to have boundaries. And that's, of course, a challenge because we are now um, really navigating in paradoxes here. Um, feminine, masculine, um, getting more fluid versus having a boundary. So that's going to be an interesting aspect. How are we going to um, make sure that we navigate these paradoxes with this moral compass in mind. And, and, and I agree with you. Um, although if you would work in my place, you wouldn't say that most organizations are feminine. <laughs> but anyway, so that's just another point. Business schools are think, I think are very masculine places, but anyway. Yeah, no, I do, I do agree that I do, I absolutely agree that I think for so many organizations, we've, we've swung way over to the masculine. Uh, sort of, and, and we need to rebalance towards the feminine, but of course we've we've got to keep that healthy expression of the masculine, you know, at the same time. And I think this is also one Russia Saudi, of course, also together with the the former um, Whole Food CEO, the inventor of conscious capitalism. I think a call out to Russia and 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 the team. I am John John Mackay, if I remember well. And then, of course, in the healing organization, the healing organization, together with uh, my special friend, if I if I could call him so, Michael Gelb. Um, uh, Michael is 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 another wonder, wonderful person who I credit especially for having written a book on the benefits of of drinking wine for creativity, which I, I find absolutely stunning. So Michael is uh, is famous <laughs> for his work on thinking like Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes, he's right. also yes, one he's of the few experts show, yeah. on the so-called Alexander techniques or embodiment techniques. So uh, not only Raj, uh, I invite everybody also to have a look at Michael's work, Michael Gebb's work, really interesting. And, and again, to the liminal conversation, some characters that are really enlightening in just being exposed to these thoughts. On the healing organization as such, I would say I, I like the book, but again, for me, it wasn't going to the nuts and bolts. And uh, some of the stories were, were, were interesting. But again, the operationalization of this, exactly like to describe it. So you need the paternal and the maternal framing. And I think someone like Simon Weston with his uh, very famous work on eco-leadership would suggest you need them almost in sequence. You need parental uh-huh. framing to create the container for psychological safety. What are the rules so that we can feel safe? In a coaching conversation, you always create this container first. Then you allow for the maternal expression of play and experimentation and, and maybe exuberance even, right? And this kind of playful, joyful nature that we should feel and then at some stage, you have to crunch it back. And even thinking about Alex Osterwalder and kind of the innovation techniques, right? We know that you you have to almost have like 100 ideas in businesses before one comes out that is really good. Then you have to crunch it back and you have to say no to lots of ideas for the one to survive or the few to survive to then scale them, right? So this kind of dance of 
creating the container, de, how do we call it, um, diver, diverging, and then converging, yeah. converging like your yeah. EU language. That is something that we need to almost create as a constant dance and, and intentionally, as Sergio Carreta would call it. Right. So that we, we have to become very able in being both in the action and observing ourselves in the action, right? As, as again, as we, we would call it, leader in role in system. And you have to be aware of all these different levels in order to consciously direct or enable an organization to, to evolve and, and emerge, and, emerge and, and flourish, right? I think, and again, if you think about traditional leadership, yeah, I mean, I kind of, from business school, that was the last time, and that was 2007 to 2009, that anyone put kind of formal knowledge into my head as a leader. And then we've been on endless leadership development seminars where, frankly, most of them were horizontal skills, how to communicate better or how to build a team or whatever. Whereas this ability to think systems, ability to kind of transcend yourself to become a tool to developing system, none of that was ever on the agenda, frankly. And when it was purpose development, a lot of this purposefulness was just a, a kind of new words for an old action plan in terms of personal development. So I really feel there's more that organizations also in terms of leadership development need to do. And final point on this, Antoinette's remark on maternal, on, on maternal versus, um, or rather feminine versus masculine. Again, I sometimes feel this, this uh, discussion is, is seen too much in a gender perspective. And I, I would invite people to look at Robert Moore's work on uh, archetypes. And when I say Moore, this is the male archetype, right? So it's, I think it's called wizard, um, king, wizard, lover, warrior, right? And not in the right order, but this is the title of the book. And these are Jungian archetypes of male development. And what you just said, Richard, getting towards what is called a wholesome male energy, which is, in, in his words, the king energy, is an individuation process that is not easy. And Campbell describes this in The Hero's Journey, where kind of the learning is in the abysses of your development. It's in the crises. And this is what we know from developmental psychology. You have to go through these crises to see yourself, to become whole, and then be able to embrace yourself and others in a wholesome, in a flourishing relationship. And what I see, as Antoinette says, in a lot of the organizations where people have, as someone claims, promote, being promoted to the kind of level of their incompetence, is that people have actually not gone on this personal development journey. And therefore, there's a lot of immature, mostly male energy around. And we need to help people, again, rites of passage, to move forward on becoming whole. And the same is true for female, by the way. The archetypes are different, and Antoinette knows better than I do. But there's the same. I've, ex I've experienced many female leaders who behaved exactly like their male counterparts. So this maturity journey was, I guess, in many regards, easier for women because they naturally embrace some of the more emotional and, and more um, community aspects of leaderships, with, which are so important these days. But they also, I believe, have to go on a similar personal development journey to truly become whole and be able to balance all these different perspectives and aspects of themselves. But Antoinette, well, what's your perspective on that? So I, I'm, I'm stressing the individual and the collective maturation that we need to enable. Um, uh, well, I have several um things in my mind. Uh, the first thing I have in my mind is that uh, I do agree with you that we have to have this 
um, maturation and make that more ex explicit as well. But if I look at the literature, for instance, about female leadership, um, Alice Eagley comes to my mind. Um, we kind of see again the structures which are kind of making it very, very difficult um, for uh, developing, but also if you already have that, living it. So even if, if you were um, able to um, embrace it because you are already at that stage, it can be very hard in, in certain institutions. Um, and, and that's what you can see certainly in an environment. I mean, we have like, I think, 8% of female professors and the rest are male professors. So um, you can see very well um, what toll that could take on you. And the second thing which I found quite interesting is here again, I'm amazed because in the innovation literature, if you go back to Cassie Eisenhower, that I think that was um, early 90s, she already written about exactly this, that you need to have these stages of, you know, convergence, divergence, uh, playfulness, kind of bringing things together again. Um, she even um, has looked at how some structures are enabling this better. She looked at uh, rituals, um, processes, rhythms. And how little of that has um, has been taken up. Um, so yes, um, maybe um, it would be good if we had the vertical leadership development at the same time. I think that's probably a very important point. And then we also probably get sorry. Full... So ver vertical leadership development at the same. So what do you mean by vertical leadership development? I, I just uh, was kind of taking up what uh, what he was saying. You know, this leadership development, which is much more towards your personal maturity a maturation right? yeah maturation one sorry yes maybe that's a german expression uh, we call it vertical um development but i wouldn't know that it's not a term we use in science very often by the way so that's also interesting it was actually introduced by the ccl the center for creative leadership yeah. and vertical implies to the the old team model of skills development right so they're they're actually it's kind of inverted to a degree because i think the the horizontal axis is skills Whereas the vertical axis relates to mindset. Okay. And, and you can think about it like going, yeah, like going up a mountain. The mindset thing is that the higher you go up, the more mountains around you you can see. Right? The, you can start to hold paradoxes. You can start to hold different perspectives on the same thing. So it's not just maturing your ability to execute. It's actually creating different perspectives on yourselves and the world around you. That is the vertical aspect. And again, I would, um, we're dropping lots of names here for people who want to go a little bit deeper into stuff. So we do it a little bit purposefully, right? So on, on this vertical development aspect, I would invite people to look at Bob Keegan, um, The Evolving Self, right? Which describes a developmental psychology model. The other is Bill Torbert, who has written about action inquiry, which is very much the same. And then you can look at the classics, right, from, from Kohlberg to Piaget to even Richard Barrett, who is su suggesting the seven degrees of consciousness model, which is building on, on, on Maslow and other theories. But again, this vertical development aspect of leader, leadership, oh, I, I, I need to mention a friend, John Knights, who's written uh, Leading Beyond the Ego on what he called transpersonal leadership. So these are, these are all methodologies to go beyond just training your skills and being able to grasp yourself and reality around you at, as Antoinette says, a higher degree of maturity and consciousness. And frankly, I would say, if you don't do that work, Simon Weston would call it staying with the trouble, 
right? And what you have done, Richard, staying with your troubles and looking deeply inside yourself and healing them and starting to understand how you act. Forget about becoming a good leader because the, the fact is, the truth is, you have to become a, inverted commas, good person, a good adult before you can ever be a good leader. Yeah, but, and, 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 and as you said, and if, with people not doing that work, you forget about good organizations, right? Yes, yes, but I would still like to do just was the third point. I believe even if you did that, even if you um, really then also built the right of the, the, the right container, which we already know quite a lot about, never took notice of, we still would have to um, solve the power problem. And that always brings us back to where we started from. Um, I think it doesn't, it's not going to fly if we are not going to really go at the, at the basics this time as well. Yeah, yeah. Which links yeah. to structures, right? Let's be... It links to structures, but I'm also thinking about societies. Um, I'm also thinking about us asking more of um, corporations in the future. I'm also thinking about, thinking about new types of corporate governments, new legal forms. We really need to be very innovative in the next 10 years in order to come to a, if that's possible, better capitalism. Because otherwise, we have to say capitalism is bankrupt. And I think we don't want to say that. Well, it's interesting. There's signs of hope there, I think, because I've seen some statistics that the growth rate amongst uh, non-profits or B Corps um, are uh, uh, the growth rates in terms of employing, employing people is, is much uh, faster. Uh, much that is true, than... but let's also not fool ourselves. And again, I, the, the statistics is, I think Winston Churchill suggested, never believe a statistic you haven't falsified yourself. I think that the problem with statistics is uh, what year do they refer to? Many are American. We don't have that many European statistics, and we have almost nothing that comes from Asia or, or Africa. But it still seems to hold that um, the large organizations, so about 500 people, hold more than 50 to 60% of employees and more than 80% of assets, right? So you still have, yes, B Corp movement is increasing. And there is also notion that uh, as, um, as Graham Boyd and so on in his book on rebuild would suggest we need to much more decentralize and look at local communities and local firms in order to solve our problems in a kind of networked fashion. But nevertheless, we have very high concentration in many sectors of our economy, and we have a very high bias towards large organizations holding the power to Antoinette's point, either in terms of number of employees or simply number of assets. Right. So yes, there are some good signs, but on the other hand, I'm of the belief that if we are not able to address the big organizations and to Antoinette's point, uh, point other institutional actors, governments and, and public sector, we are still stuck. The B Corps, with all my respect for them and all my love for the social enterprise movement, they're not going to fix it by themselves. Right. Okay. And so what have you, what, what have you um, come across so far in terms of ways into that problem around power? What's, what's emerging, you know, beyond anything else we've talked about already? Lots of things, Antoinette. I, I, I'll, I'll throw some balls to you if you, if you, if you want. Um, I think on the one hand, power in terms of dialogue and uh, communication, our discussions on Habermas and Foucault. So what is the, what is the role of, di- of power and, and also love, right, uh, in, inside an organization? Um, then I think uh, power in terms of the structural aspects, as, as Antoinette pointed out. Right, so what are the ways to to make decisions, right? And, and what can we learn from from the political or societal sector? 
And so if we talk about liquid democracy, we are talking about institutional democracy, which is a proposal from, I think, uh, University College London. We are talking about uh, concepts of meritocracy versus democracy, direct representative, and so on. So how, what are these uh, societal government and power constructs, how we decide things in society? How does it relate to organizations and vice versa? Right? Because people are, uh, I think, quick to understand that governments are also businesses in, in their logic, but they're not so quick in actually doing the reverse and looking at, okay, what, what can we learn from politics, so to speak, in regards to businesses. And and again, people are fooling themselves because every organization is also a political organization, right? In the platonic sense of polit- politics being nothing else than kind of finding rules of how we interact and, and live with each other in a context of a kind of mini society, which is what an organization is, right? So the, this this idea that uh, business is separate from society is, is illusional. Right? It's, it, mm. it is a subset of society, and there's no reason why the rules should differ. And I'm, I'm loving to quote my friend, uh, our friend Tom von der Lubbe on this, who's always saying, when you go at home, do you do performance reviews with your wife every year? I mean, have you tried that once? <laughs> so if you behave that yeah. way in your private life, how would you suddenly say, no, a business is different, leave my brain and my humanity at the door, and I behave completely differently? We've created these, again, these categorizations, and very often we're using these rationalizations to support and explain uh, Margaret Heffernan talks about willful blindness, right? Some behaviors that actually would be unacceptable in our private ways. But and again, I'm digressing a little bit on purpose here, but power therefore is I think a key dimension, which plays into multiple aspects on structure, on the way that organizations actually work. There's formal and positional power, but there's also just the power of being uh, endowed with authority because of, anything it could be white privilege so to speak right people being being taller right or or kind of uh, endorsing a certain subgroup uh, or majority opinions there are many ways power is expressed and not all bad as mary parker parker follett suggested we have to go from power over to power with power mm. is what makes us be creative and and the force that drives us so it's more about making that power good than as Antoinette said, kind of thwarting some of the negative aspects of power. But here I go over, kind of waffled along to give Antoinette a little bit of thinking time. After that, Um, now I have to kind of uh, summarize somewhat. No, but I mean... (laughs) what I mean, I I see two things uh, arising from that. First of all, um, I believe we have to be more innovative in... If we we look at one aspect where the power really kind of... uh, coalesces in companies. Let's look at the boards. Um, and I think we need to have need to be more creative there in bringing them really into more this value, virtue, character creating aspect. And uh, they can't do that if they only meet four times a year, if they have no ideas about the companies, if they are not kind of much more engrossed into the whole um, aspect um, so that if they are not reflective, if we are choosing them not on ba- based on practical wisdom. So I think there's a lot of things we can do there. And I'm not going into the points you were ra- raising. I, I'm aware of that. I'm just bringing up new ones. Uh, and the second point is checks and balances. I think um, something like protecting utopia is also important. And um, these checks and balances here, I think we can really learn from 
some societal ideas. Uh, Odias mentioned liquid democracy. That's an interesting one. I'm assuming that isn't drinking more wine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's your earlier point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going into that. (laughs) I think yesterday I had to delete the post on LinkedIn after I had too much wine. No, let's not go there. (laughs) But anyway. Um, but I think there are interesting ideas. Um, it's liquid democracy. I still, uh, other than Oti, am a big believer in direct democracy and federalism. Um, so subsidiary principle, I think, is very, very important. Um, we are going to talk to Bruno Frey and Margaret Dostolo, who have come up with the idea of aleatoric democracy. That would solve our asshole problem, which is quite nice. So, well, maybe I we mean- should pause there and just expl- <laughs> just explain to the listeners those two I don't think people are going to be familiar with liquid democracy or aleatoric democracy. So yeah, one of those, just briefly. Okay, I'm going at the aleatoric and then Otti can do the liquid because he was for a short time member of the pirate party and would have to know what it is exactly. So the aleatoric democracy is really, I think it's also, I don't know who of the Greek has invented it. I'm sure Otti knows that better, but that's not so important. It's about... Um, that you are also working with chance. So the idea is that um, if you have to um, select for an important post, be it the CEO, be it board members, you would first do your selection. And here I have already said, based on character to a great degree as well, practical wisdom. But then um, you might have four good candidates and then the dice is going to um, decide which of these candidates is going to be on the board. And the interesting thing is it has all kinds of effects. Um, for instance, you will have less, less hubris in the board because you can never say, well, I was the, the greatest guy in the room. Um, so it's, it's a quite, quite an interesting, it's, it might be a small invention, but I think it's an important invention also to increase diversity on boards, um, to mm. get rid of this uber hybrids we have. So, um, and that's why I just think you have to look at all these different um, innovations uh, which are out there, which maybe are on the societal level as well, and, and, and ask yourself, how can we use that in companies as well? And of course, vice, vice versa. So, Otto, yeah, you're of, going to explain liquid democracy. Well, we, you yeah, said something at the end of that. I want, I want to connect it to power because I think, again, why is this relevant to Richard's question about power? There are two aspects. One, is, is kind of the negative aspects of power over. This is where we always talk about bureaucracies and positional power. And in spite of the good intentions of Weber's kind of concept of bureaucracy, people abusing that power to constrain the autonomy, the autonomy of their subordinates or, or do things that are making them suffer. Right. So one is the context of structural power, positional power, and there are many ideas that are leading towards um, the decentralization of that power. We talked about agile, tribes and squads. We talked about sociocracy and circles. We talked about higher 4,000 microenterprises. So all means to decentralize power. But the other aspect of power is decision-making. And this is where these ocracies, from democracy to humanocracy and so on, come in. Ocracy is a form of government, which, which mainly relates to how decisions are made. So Antoinette's point was, we need to have more phronesis, so we need to have good judgment in the way that people make decisions. And that is, I think, a function to a degree of, on the one hand, um, individual development, Right, so we need to make sure vertical development, we talked about that. On the other hand, it's also diversity of thought. So we need to have diversity. And again, I would like to make a difference between diversity, which is 
often pushed as a policy intervention, which has its right, I think, until that point on, clearly there are not enough women in leadership position. And the same could be argued for many other minorities that are not fully represented. For minorities, we are not a minority. We, I think, are a majority, oh, well, but sorry, that doesn't I, matter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a very valid point. So minority is in the context of representation. But yeah. minority also sometimes, so again, kind of in engineering business, very often women or other parts are a minority just because of this is a, a, a sector that attracts males and so on. So one is the representation aspect, but the other is diversity of thought. And this, I think, for me is almost more important because you can very easily have diversity in terms of gender or age, but not diversity in terms of thought. This is what leads, for example, kind of certain sectors to employ people from other sectors or other countries or cultures to ensure that they're actually getting to what is that diversity of thought. But the other is the decision is, is a process question. How do you make decisions? And here it's very important, I think, for any leader to understand they're actually different ways. Right. So the, the one, the autocratic decision making that is prevalent in bureaucracy, we all know, I decide my way or the highway. Then there's in democracies, the majority um, decision making principle. Right, which sometimes is good, but if you're taking a decision on cybersecurity, maybe you want to have experts, which leads you what Frederick Laloux in his Teal um, work would point to, which is a so-called by advice decision-making process. Right, so the person who takes a decision has to ask the people who have expertise or who are impacted by a decision before making a decision. Right, or then you go to sociocratic decision making, which is the circle holds the accountability for decision. It might delegate the decision making to someone, but in reality, what happens is that a proposal for decision can only be objected by in a qualified fashion, and it's qualified on the common good, right, on the common goal of the team. So these are all different ways of making decision making. Now, liquid democracy is basically a a form where you're mixing direct and representative democracy. So I'm I'm saying on certain decisions, I want to vote myself. On other decisions where I don't have the expertise, I'm happy to have proxies. And these proxies can be allocated on different grounds. So you can say for these topics, that is my proxy, right? Or for these whatever, these days when I'm not there, that is my proxy. And so, so, so the liquidity is the dy- dynamism in making sure the individual feels they are correctly rep- represented. And it might not always be the one person who I've put in place because that's my local MP or something, right? It, it might require more dynamism. And this is also the notion of institutional democracy where the idea is that our democracies have failed to actually ensure proper engagement and proper sense of being collectively accountable by the electorate in many modern forms of democracy. And therefore, we need to find new ways to give people the feeling it's actually theirs. Because the idea of demos, democracy, was the people is sovereign. And that feeling, I think, has been lost. And this is why we're seeing so many populist kind of um, people being voted in. I'm not going to talk about Boris Johnson here, because otherwise I feared I might not get to the UK on my relocation. But um, the, the idea is that we need to give people the feeling back that they actually have control of what is happening in their democracies. Otherwise, um, they will abdicate that accountability and potentially just go for whoever is against the elitist system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, so an ability to be a bit more discriminant about when it's representative and when it's direct. Yeah. And being being clear, I, I'm I'm a big favor or fa- or what's the right word? I'm a big fan of sociocracy, and uh, a call out to Ted Rao. Um, sociocracy for all is a website everybody should have had a look at. And James Priest, who are some of the proponents of this sociocracy, 
um, because it puts the common goal, the shared goal, and, and to a degree, the common good, because these are um, sociocracy informed by Quakers. So there's a there's a there's a an ideolo- ideological philosophy, so to speak, or ideolo- ideology behind it. They put that always in front of the individual preference. And to your point, Richard, of kind of finding that degree of I'm willing to let go some of my individual freedom for the collective good. I think that is potentially a good decision making mechanism to ensure that this is being um, put on the table and say, this is my preference, but I have a tolerance zone that could go this far. Let's together figure out what is best, best for our common good. And this is in sociocracy, a very explicit conversation, whereas yeah. in most of the traditional bureaucracies and even in agile, it's not on the table because the goal is always kind of assumed to be the competition, as Antoinette said, and the, the profit. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, thank you. Yeah, that 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 uh, yeah that that makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I suppose it's I, I have a personal bias always to so the individual evolution and the maturation of the soul because I suppose I've invested so much. But we just cannot ignore the fact that we live inside structures um, that, as we've discussed, have a huge impact on uh, you know us as individuals. Right? We can't. I can't. It's it's a it's an illusion for me to think that I am an individual going on a maturation journey purely through my own agency that's as much as i find myself in that illusion all the time of course it's not the case yeah and it could be counterproductive this is the challenge with the individuation notion of a freudian developmental model or jungian developmental model because it always has the individual integrity and this was our teal critique the wholeness of the individual i become whole and that's my whole that's the thing i'm sorry for the pun that's my whole focus what it leaves out is that notion of transcendence that ultimately, and that's the Eastern yin-yang notion, that we're all part of something bigger and greater. And the discovery of that is actually what gives us the energy to go beyond ourselves. Yeah. So this, this, this notion of self-healing can very quickly become a very selfish endeavor. And Antoinette has, uh, has, has offered some research on meditation. Right? You've seen meditation practices and mindful practices, practices proliferate. The, the, the challenge with that is that you might kind of become mindful and, and meditate until the end of your days and your neighbor is still dying, right? You're not going out. You're not going beyond yourself. Actually, you become a fruitful member of the whole good because you get so focused and you're to a degree not getting out of that self-healing process anymore. And again, from a psychological perspective, I would suggest that actually the self-healing to a large degree is in the other healing now, that has some limitations. If you have some real pathological challenges, you need to, of course, get them resolved first. But if it's more about that malaise that we're all suffering from in this age of anxiety, as Alan Watts called it, right? if it's, if it's this midlife crisis that we are stuck in, well, actually, the only way out of that, in my experience, is to go out and act. And, and mostly, as Alfred Anders suggested, is kind of, uh, if you don't know what the, what, the, what the point and the meaning of your life is, Help Alfred Adler, sorry, help others, right? Your, your awakening is in the awakening for others, not in selfish mindfulness and meditation. That's a yeah. personal perspective. Yeah, well, even the Buddha chastised people for meditating too much, right? <laughs> yeah, they, well, yeah, Buddha, of course. Um, I mean, if you're lucky and sit under the ficus tree and then uh, have uh, the awakening, and then uh, Buddha, of course, I don't want to be disrespectful at all, but he was uh, the, the son of a 
prince or a king, right? And then he went out and saw the suffering of his uh, peasants in the fields and then came to the idea that actually the best way to um, get through life is to avoid suffering. And I feel that is very helpful to a degree. And Antoinette and I talk a lot about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, rational emotive behavioral therapy. So there's a reframing that helps you first to start the healing process. But then I guess this avoidance of pain is insufficient to actually become a positive actor in society. And this is where I see some of the European model potentially enhancing uh, an Eastern philosophy. But Antoinette. Well, we can, I think we just could go on and on with that. Couldn't be. <laughs> but I do agree. I mean, that's the point. Um, that's why I find it so imp- important to distinguish positive empathy, which um, arguably is much more also in the Eastern philosophy from compassion, with, because compassion always has this active element of showing mercy as well. And, and I do believe, uh, but I, I mean, I cannot help. I am European. <laughs> That this is this is the way um, to go, and we should do that extra little bit. And maybe that's, by the way, also the problem. It's the importing of uh, mindfulness um, into our context again, where it then lends to self-optimization mainly, um, and maybe even is ego conflating as research was showing, rather than ego deflating, which it wasn't supposed to um, be. Um, But I mean, this is it. We are in a certain context. We were grown up in a certain context. That's why we also should be mindful in kind of um, embracing what we have um, found good over the centuries, um, as difficult that is is, um, in our context. Yeah, yeah. Good. Wow. Well, uh, we've been going for about two hours. This uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> this so this yeah. I mean, the two of you are obviously so thoroughly researched in su- such a wide breadth of fields. You know, I'm excited to see what the you know the book. Um, how you managed to pull all these three heads together into a single book. <laughs> Whereas I want to make the point. You're going to need is, a separate volume just for the uh, for the bibliography for each of the for the biography. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I mean, we have. I, I want to make this point. We started out with the idea not to just write a book because books will have seldom changed the world. I mean, something like uh, Domena Meadows' report for the Club of Rome, the limits of growth, have had a huge impact. We couldn't possibly hope to have such an impact with a single book. So what we are hoping for. And again, today was brilliant. Thank you for making the for having us uh, kind of uh, and for enabling and holding this dialogue. Is I think the as as Stacy suggested, the dialogic nature, us all being kind of fragmented individuals coming together and holding these questions together, and maybe maybe starting to create better relationship amongst each other, and actually start to create collective emergence in a positive fashion. I think there's this notion that Mac Wheatley said, emergence is bringing like-minded people with similar values together and see what happens. Right? If we can overcome the, the fragmentation between all of us and start to create something together, which starts to change the context, because I think this is what, for me, again, has come out of this conversation. As Antoinette just said, if we are reinserting some of the concepts and kind of management philosophies or, or methods into the wrong context, nothing is ever going to change. Right. So collectively yeah, yeah. looking at the central at, insight uh, for me from, from, you know, this conversation. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, again, there's a very uh, last uh, names dropping, uh, Damon Chenchula, right? Look at the work on change that he's done on social network analysis. The only way to create collective behavioral change is by creating so-called white bridges, right? By connecting people with each other and then creating social trust and proof in the collective environment. And I think that's more than anything else what we're doing. We're going from door to door and starting to kind of talk to people, right? And hopefully start to create some resonance amongst and between each other. And then maybe without forcing it in any sort of way, we will see a little bit of alignment and walking together, maybe in different, dire- in different ways, but towards the same direction. And I have a strong belief that um, there is still hope, right? But, but uh, I also want to say, People have to, pardon my French, um, get their asses off their couches and start to walk into the right direction and look at themselves, look at the mirror, as you pointed out, Richard, at the beginning, to see how can we become part of something better. And yes, it's going to come at a cost, right? It's not going to come for free, but we will have a much better feeling about who we are and why we are alive, as uh, Oscar Wilde said, as opposed to just existing because we are part of something thriving, something that could actually create a positive change for us and the people around us. And I think, yeah, maybe that's the, maybe that's the point in life, right? Making a little positive difference, right? All of us. And again, I think dialogue is the way to get there. And, and I think um, what we have already realized, the main challenge, but of course there is also hope that we are conquering these main challenges, that we are all um, entangled in, in still... competitive thinking. So I think this is really something we need to kind of um, leave beyond. That's my my conviction. Um, Really, really thinking how can we find things that we value together and and walk together in a certain direction, leaving our own whatever products, frameworks, um, silos we're coming from um, to a certain degree um, behind. That's and that's that's a challenge, but a, a very um, exciting one. Let's put it this way. Touche. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Thank you, Otti. Um, so we'll put a link to uh, the good goodorganizations.com, right? Um, anywhere else we should send people? I mean, you've dropped a kind of a bunch of references uh, during the course of the interview. Um, we'll maybe pull out a few of those those key ones and provide some links there. Anywhere else you'd send people if they, if they want to go deeper on this? I would suggest what we're trying to do, because, again, we're trying to hold a community of, of researchers, of free thinkers. Antoinette mentioned sages, so people who we feel have a, have a really important message that we want to, to offer to the world, so to speak, also through the research we are doing. So on the website, I think we will try to create what is called a free thinker section and offer a lot of diverging thoughts from all and many of the people we mentioned today so that people can create their own critical thinking on this. It's not what we, Antoinette, you, I have in mind. It's, it's everybody going on the journey to evolve both their cognitive kind of um, thinking, but also their emotional, their maturity, as we suggested. Go on that journey. And, and one thing I wanted to add, Antoinette, when you were creating the three points on that vertical development, I think the fourth one for me is Let's do it together. The only way that I've seen people really grow vertically is by by going it together, creating vertical kind of solidarity hubs, creating 
kind of little clubs where they can share some of the challenges, share some of the successes. And then what Yalom called in psychology is consensual validation. So when, when people see that others can do it, I maybe can do it myself. I can give myself permission to go a little bit into that direction and try some new things out. And, and maybe we can do that together as a little bit of a solidarity group amongst ourselves and yeah, join the club. It's um, yeah, join, join the revolution. That's, <laughs> bit, that's, that's a bit of the permission you've given me here. It's just to think and articulate this change in more revolutionary terms with a greater revolutionary zeal. Because I really do think it is. This is an overturning of the current paradigm. This isn't a getting a more adaptive enterprise, right? It's a, it really is revolutionary. I think that's more accurate what, what we're all describing here. Yeah. Yeah, and it's Good. funny, uh, to Antoinette's point, Pete Senge wrote the book, The Necessary Revolution. When was it, Antoinette? 1987 yeah. or 92 <laughs> or whatever. Is it? We knew this for a while. Let's get our act together and start, as Richard says, I'll endorse this fully. Fifth revolution. Come on, be a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and look for some challenges as well. I mean, us working together is a big challenge, but I think this is what brings things forward. And, then, and, and that's, that's the other aspect. You cannot have a revolution if you're not challenged as well. So, yeah. Well, let's, on that, we should close, Richard. Revolutionaries of the world unite. See you on yeah. worldorganizations.com <laughs> if you dare, right? If you kind of leave your fears behind, do what you are, have been too afraid to do. Come on board and let's make a change. All right. Bravo. Thank you, Otti. Thank you, Antoinette. That, that's been wonderful. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.